Hello and welcome to Real Estate 2020 Vision, the podcast connecting you with the people and the products shaping the future of our industry. My name's Guy Westlake, I'm founder of Lavanda, and today it's my absolute pleasure to welcome onto the show Harry Hill, former chairman and chief executive of Countrywide, which during his tenure was the UK's largest group of estate agents and one of the founders of Rightmove. Harry, welcome to the show. Nice to talk to you. Harry, you've had an absolutely fascinating career. How about we start at the beginning? How did you get into property in the first place? My life's been beset by a series of fortunate accidents, really, which have helped my career enormously. And they started almost the day I left school because I'd always, encouraged by my father, had ambitions to join the army and applied to go to Sandhurst, but unfortunately was rejected. So that really put me into a bit of a quandary because I'd really not really thought of anything other than becoming an army officer and doing what my father had always wished that he'd done following the war. Now remind me, Harry, you're a Yorkshireman, aren't you? I'm, I'm from Yorkshire, yeah. And um, uh, as a consequence, I, I went into the school careers room, um, which was pretty primitive at the time. And I, I'd always felt that if I joined the army, it would be an outdoor life. And so I was wedded to the idea of something that was outdoors and decided that I would apply for a job as an um, auctioneer with an agricultural cattle market type business, um, who were also charters of heirs. And um, was successful in getting offered a, a pupillage, something that doesn't happen anymore, article clock, um, which meant for three years I worked um, from morning until night and then in the evening studied to become a charter surveyor on the princely sum of £2 a week, which even when I was a boy was very little money. And as a consequence, I was desperately hard up. And if I ever wanted to kick a girl to the cinema, the only way I could do it was by working on a Saturday or a Sunday afternoon for one of the local builders on their showrooms. And so my work constituted Monday to Friday working in the cattle markets and on farms and in property work, but um, at the weekends selling new houses from showrooms. And over the three-year period, without being totally modest, I realized that I was actually quite good at selling houses. Um, and I was able to empathize with people's requirements and listen carefully to what they wanted and fit them together with houses. And so at the end of my three-year article pupillage, instead of carrying on as a cattle auctioneer, which I'd thoroughly enjoyed, I decided that there might be more money in selling real estate. And therefore, my career uh, sort of changed. And I, I went into house agency and joined a firm on the coast of Yorkshire um, in Whitby, and had a thoroughly good year taking that business from nowhere to the top office in the in the area. And at the end of the year, was offered a, a pay rise of £100, which I thought was a bit miserable in view of the success we'd had. And so I looked for another job and was actually offered a job in Sheffield, but still in Yorkshire, uh, with a pay rise of 3250 And what's more importantly, uh, a yellow sports car, which appealed to me enormously as a sort of 22-year-old um, bachelor. And then my career went on from there. I, I, I stayed there for three or four years, and then I moved to East Anglia largely because by then I had become married and I thought it was a nice environment in which to start having a family. Um, one of my passions is fishing, and East Anglia at the time had a wonderful array of rivers full of fish so that at the weekend I could get my fishing rod and go fishing. And I spent the next 10 or 15 years of my life until I was in my th- mid-30s working as a partner in a firm of six office estate agents in East Anglia and probably would have been there for the rest of my life very happily living on the edge of the royal estate at Sandringham had it not been decided by various financial institutions in the mid-80s to start buying estate agency businesses. 
And the first entry into the market was Lloyds Bank, who bought a, a firm of estate agents and auctioneers based in King's Lynn, which by coincidence is where I lived. The firm was Charles Hawkins. And so I, I had a meeting with my two partners, with whom I also got on extraordinarily well, and said, look, guys, I think things are changing. I think institutions are coming into this industry, and they're going to make a big difference. And we might possibly, although we're very successful here, and we're you know, very happy driving our Volvo estate cars and earning 40 or 50,000 a year, we might just get left behind. So why don't we look at the opportunities to go forward? And so we looked around the marketplace and within the space of a year, we had merged our business with a much larger practice. And because they were largely agricultural based and professionally based, they didn't really have a very active estate agency division. They decided to ask me to head up the estate agency division across the 40 offices. And for two or three years, um, ran that business, grew the estate agency business very substantially during which time the agencies were being bought by Lloyds Bank and one or two other people who came into the marketplace. And one or two companies went public. Um, Best Eves, uh, an Essex-based business, went public, and Man & Co., a Surrey-based business, went public. And we were approached by Man & Co. in the late 80s to um, be acquired and join their public company, which duly in, in turn occurred. And shortly after that, a bank called Hambro's Bank, which now doesn't exist, but um, was a sort of prestigious city bank, took a controlling interest in the two listed companies, Best Reeves and Man and & Co., and created a large company called Hambro Countrywide. In the process, made quite a lot of the original Man and & Co. and Best Reeves people quite wealthy and left a bit of a vacuum at the top for somebody to run the whole business. And because I'd, my profile had sort of improved through Abbott's being the head of their agency and then joining Man & Co., um, and again, still having a reasonably high profile within large business. When Jeremy Agues and Paul Locke, who were the two principals at Man & Co, decided that they'd made enough tens of millions to retire, I, I sort of got shoehorned into the position of joint chief executive with the guy from the bank. We had, I think from memory, about 100 officers and were at the time the largest estate energy group in the UK. I'd be fascinated to understand what it was like to work alongside a bank. I mean, did they have a deep enough understanding of the business? The people there were extraordinarily supportive and they had a plan to grow the business um, quite aggressively and were extremely supportive of me personally. Their plan was A, to grow an estate agency business of scale, but their secondary plan was that they had, in a previous existence, backed a, uh, an entrepreneur called Mark Weinberg and created Hambro Life. They backed Mark, I think, with a million pound and sold their stake for a hundred million or more. And their, their vision on estate agency was if they could build a large estate agency business that could be a catalyst to sell insurance products. And so during the course of the following two years or three years, we had long discussions with Guardian Royal Exchange, who were a major UK insurance company. We were continuing to grow the estate agency by acquisition, and we created a life company to sell life insurance products. Um, through our distribution channel. At the time, there was a product in the market called endowment mortgages, which subsequently became less fashionable and less feasible financially as interest rates fell. But during the 90s, uh, particularly the endowment product was very fashionable, um, very um, profitable for the distributor, which we were. And Countrywide was built by a series of acquisitions, some of which were pretty ballsy. We bought 300 offices from the Nationwide Building Society for a pound. Um, they were losing something in the order of £40 million a year when we bought them. 
and my management team who were extremely able turned that business round. And so by 10 or 15 years later, I was running what became the largest estate agency business in the world. We had 1,400 officers, 14,000 staff, the largest surveying business in the UK, employing seven or 800 charters of heirs, doing the very large percentage of all mortgage surveys in the UK. And eventually, it attracted the attentions of two buyers. And we had a, a, an auction of thoughts between 3i in the UK and Apollo in the United States, who I think the year about 2005 bought the business out. And in the process made all our original investors a great deal of money. So how and where does Rightmove exactly fit into the countrywide journey? In the process of building the business, we'd also started at the instigation of my colleagues uh, a portal business, which we termed Rightmove. Um, we brought in probably on my instigation rather than theirs, two or three of our major trade competitors so that Rightmove had a significant market share, um, something in the order of 20%, and then went out to the rest of the market and offered the facility for them to join. And within two years, everybody knows that Rightmove has become the leading portal in the UK. It has something in the order of 95% of properties in the UK listed on there. And for the first five years of existence, I was chairman and was ably assisted by Stephen Shipperley, who's chairman of Connells, and Grenville Turner, who was chief executive of Halifax Profit Services. So that was a great success. Eventually, Apollo sold their share in Right Move for, I think it was in the order of £180 million, which had initially cost countrywide um, £750,000. So it was a fantastic investment as far as the business was concerned. And perhaps prematurely so, this right move now has a market capitalisation of over £5 billion. Harry, it's an absolutely fantastic story and you've had an incredible run in anyone's books. Um, what bits of advice would you have for you know, young aspiring leaders looking to follow in your footsteps? My ethos throughout my time at Countrywide, which continues to be my ethos, is that in any business with which you're employed, um, or involved, you should employ the very finest people you possibly can and treat them very well and retain them so that staff turnover is at very low levels and eventually you'll get a reward. So that countrywide, we always had the thesis that if we saw somebody we thought was super good in any attendant industry, either that we bought or that we became aware of, we would offer them a job and we often have a very curious conversation because the guy would say, or the girl, what am I going to do? And we'd say, well, we're not quite sure. But, you know, for somebody as good as you, there'll be a job up here. Just come and hang around and something will turn up. And invariably something did. So we, we had, a, I think, a, an outstanding team of people um, from a diversity of backgrounds. In hindsight, I was a little embarrassed because many of them had master's degrees or wonderful qualifications far in excess of mine. And my only ability was probably, I would say, to spot good people to give them the opportunity to grow and prosper in the organisation and to retain their goodwill. And that continues to be my leading thought process on any business I'm involved with. Well, those are kind words and softly spoken. I've no doubt that you know anyone I know would be absolutely thrilled to work in an environment like that. So what happened after the sale of Countrywide then? Did you retire? So post the sale, I, I hung around for a year or 18 months as chairman, and then it became apparent that they, they were going in a slightly different direction to me. And I, I decided that I would take the opportunity to retire from my full-time occupation and become a non-executive director with a variety of property and hospitality businesses with which I felt um, some association and started to make some small and medium-sized financial investments in some of those businesses. And since then, that's what I've done. 
I've been very lucky to be involved with one or two businesses that have gone very badly and one or two businesses that have gone very well. But overall, I've enjoyed thoroughly that and I've been involved with some very good people. Now, Harry, you're an investor and a non-executive at a number of private companies, which I'm very proud to say includes Lavanda. But you're also a non-executive at a number of public companies. Can you talk to us about those for a second? My two most recent public appointments, I, I stepped down from, I was involved with a business called Learning Technology, which we took from 14 million to 1.2 billion. And after five years non-executive, I, I stood down there. And Hunters PLC is an estate agency group, which was actually sold in the last month to property franchise group. And I've stood down from the board there, having been there for five years and been involved in the flotation of that business. You must be one of only a very small number of people, Harry, I think, who've had successes that span both real estate and the technology sector. So first of all, well done you. I'm sure, however, like the rest of us, you've also, amongst the highlights, faced a number of challenges, had a number of knocks and failures. What have been the foundational experiences in your career that have allowed you to go on to build so much success? When I was a boy of 16 or 17 in my first agricultural practice, my immediate boss was a retired policeman. Um, if I stood out of line, he would kick me or beat me with a piece of rubber hose. It wouldn't be acceptable today. Um, but he, he, he taught me um, standards in business and behavior that I like to think that I would have had. But if I stood out of line, he certainly put me back into line. I also remember him. His name was Eric Richmond. Strange I should remember that after so many years. Um, he also reminded me that the first £100 of your life savings are always the hardest to save and taught me, I think, the value of money, although I don't think I've ever not had the value of money. He, he was a very moral, typical Yorkshire policeman, and um, I think he instilled into me life's values. So that the three years I spent working in and around Eric Richmond were very valuable. And in my professional career, subsequently, when I worked to East Anglia, I worked for a uh, or worked as a partner with a senior partner called David Bedford. The guy um, had a six-office practice. He subsequently left and set up a little one-office practice. He was a very accomplished estate agent, a very good marketeer, both of himself and of the business. We had a quite disproportionate value of advertising support from people like Country Life because of David's personality and his attention to detail. So I think David taught me a lot about the skills of estate agency. And I have absolutely no doubt overlaid with a very healthy dose of natural flair, Harry. <laughs> Which brings me on to my next question. Now, I know you to be far too modest and humble to talk about this ordinarily, but I'd love you to share with us what you believe your greatest strengths are that have helped and supported you in your career. I, I think I am genuinely a modest person, Guy. Um, my abilities are quite modest in many ways. I think the only ability that I have is the ability to make a decision, which I found many people don't have. The bravery to see it through, even when the going gets rough sometimes. And also the ability sometimes, thankfully rarely, that when things have clearly gone wrong, to face up to the fact they've gone wrong and to pull the plug, both with people, fortunately not very often, or business decisions. And in Countrywide, for example, we had for a while an office in the Far East, in Hong Kong and Tokyo. Um, those decisions to go there were made at the very best of times. The Japanese economy was going fantastically well, and the Japanese institutions were major buyers in the um, UK of trophy buildings. And we thought through our commercial side that that would be a very thing, good thing to do. Sadly, within a year, the Japanese economy imploded, and getting out of Japan was an expensive 
effort, but it's one that we've made and it's a, the right thing to have done. Similarly, Hong Kong, the Chinese people into London slowed down for a while and so we came out of Hong Kong. So we made decisions often based on the right decision at the time, but when things went wrong, we were prepared to cut our losses and go. And in the case of people, we were all totally loyal to our people if they were good. But if we found that they stepped badly out of line, then we were pretty ruthless to say, this is the end of the line. Now, I know these last 12 months you've had your hands pretty full with charitable work. Tell us what's been keeping you so busy. They've occurred during the coronavirus. I have visited a few schools, one of which um, had a very poor and condemned playground. And I spoke to the headmistress and said, why don't you get this sorted out? And she said, well, we would love to, but unfortunately, we got no money. Uh, And the local authority said that it would be quite a long time before we can get any. And so I decided to, out of my own back pocket and that of a few of my very good chums, raise some money for them and um, go back to them and say, look, why don't we find some volunteer labour? I'm sure in this market there will be some. And we'll build an adventure playground that you'd be proud of. So that occurred. Um, And set my mind thinking that there are probably other projects in the East End where children are from deprived backgrounds without many facilities at home or at school. And so we now have um, just finished our second scheme. We have two more that we're doing in um, May, coronavirus conditions allowing, and also a couple of schemes in Northern Ireland, which are in Larne, which is the location of one of my chums who was kind enough to invest money into the into the first school. So I've now decided that we'll try and do 10 school um, schemes this year, largely in areas where there are social deprivation, where the children don't necessarily have the access to outside space at home. Many of them live in high-rise flats. And I have to say, Guy, that the response from both friends financially and um, friends and family uh, and volunteer labour has been unbelievable, really very supportive. And when, when you see these little children coming out of their classrooms, used to seeing nothing, seeing these climbing frames and crawling walls and slides and um, circuits that they can ride their bicycles around, you know, it makes you feel very good. And it's very nice to be able to get something back into the community, which by and large over my life, although I started in a very poor working class family, has been very good to me. Where is your local community, Harry? Where's home? Yeah, I now live in central London, uh, in St. Catherine's Dock um, by Tower Bridge. And uh, that's been great because my, I have three of my five sons live within a sort of 15-minute cycle ride from here. And so although I've been able to see them very rarely, as, as indeed everyone else has been, at least I've been able occasionally to jump on my bicycle and cycle around and have a cup of coffee on the pavement outside some coffee shop or whatever. Let's talk about COVID for a second. I mean, obviously, it's left no part of the economy unscathed. How have your various business interests been impacted these last 12 months? Curiously, Guy, um, the the property industry where my main interest has been and Hunters where I was on the board, we had a period of three months when the business completely stopped. And, you know, even public companies like Hunters started to think, will we survive this at all? Will Will we be able to pay our staff? You know, despite furlough, will we ever bring them back? Um, Will the bank renew our overdraft facility or whatever? And so there was a very bumpy period about 15 months ago when I think most businesses seriously questioned whether the life was ever going to recover. But but it did recover. And, you know, by the late spring or early summer, where we began to think last year that we were coming out of the crisis and Rishi Sunak started letting things out like Heat out to help out. Um, the property industry started again, and hunters, having thought that they would 
maybe not survive, by the end of the year had their best year ever. I know Hunters to be a national network of both wholly owned and franchised branches. I mean, it's probably benefited from this huge trend of urban city dwellers migrating away in search of more space in rural locations. Is that the case? Yeah, undoubtedly. Yeah, if, if hunters have a, a weakness, if that's the right word, it's that they don't have a heavy central London exposure. They have a few officers. They have one not quite close to me. Um, they probably have half a dozen officers in and around what you would consider central London. Um, but the vast majority of their officers are in the countryside. And as you say, they have seen a tremendous uptick in activity, both in the terms of rental and um, purchase market, of people who are realising that maybe they will come back to their offices in London or major cities, but perhaps not five days a week ever again. And therefore, the ability to live in the country and have a garden and all the things that living in the country entail, as opposed to living in a, in a city centre, has, has increased substantially. So there has been a material um, uptick in activity, and they've been definitely a beneficiary of that. So what are the learnings from the businesses that have managed to weather this storm? You know, what have they done right? The businesses have conserved cash during the, the period when it was almost impossible to trade profitably or probably trade at all. And there was a period during the course of last year where, um, for example, I'm involved, I'm chairman of a business called Stay in a Pub. It is what it says on the tin. And it's not difficult to imagine that staying in a pub has been quite difficult for the last few months because the pubs have been closed. No criticism of the management of the business there. It's been totally impossible to generate revenue. So we made the decision to cut costs to a, you know, absolute to a minimum. Everybody's been on furlough. The technology costs have been cut to the absolute minimum. And so that situation has been applied across the board on all the business I'm involved with, the possible exception of one, which is a bridging lending business, where the, the market has been largely unaffected. Um, all the other businesses I'm involved have taken the very tough decisions very early to conserve cash, to furlough staff regrettably where it's appropriate and necessary, and to hunker down. And the bizarre situation, um, guys, that I think having had in some cases, the worst possible trading conditions in my lifetime in the last 12 to 18 months. Several of them, Stainer Pub may be one, Lavender may be another, Hunter certainly experiencing at the moment, may see over the next year or two the very best trading conditions that you could ever possibly imagine. Because I think we're going to see people of my generation who are probably the most affluent in the UK being very reluctant to get on an aeroplane they're very cash rich and time rich, so they have lots of time to spend on vacations, staycations, um, bird watching, fishing, uh, walking, God knows what, uh, outside their own environment. So the ability to generate bookings through um, short-term accommodation in pubs or Airbnb type space or whatever, I think is going to be phenomenal for the next two, three years. So having seen the worst possible trading conditions in my lifetime, I think we're about to see the best trading conditions I've seen in my lifetime. Um, I wouldn't like shares in an airline and I wouldn't like shares in a cruise liner business at the moment. But I think businesses that concentrate on national ability to travel and um, diverse locations are going to do tremendously well. And I'm proud of the business that I'm involved in that they've conserved their cash as ruthlessly as they have. And are in the position now to take advantage of those upturns. At its core, at its most basic level, real estate is about two things. It's about the transaction of hard assets 
and it's about service. Now, given the overall size, scale and importance of real estate as an industry, I would say we've been relatively slow to adopt transformational technology. I'd love to know what you think is in store. Have we already had our sort of digital epiphany or is there a tsunami of change that's still waiting to happen? Right move changed the property industry out of all recognition around the turn of the century, 2000, 2001. In the last 20 years, when I, when I was a boy, before you were born, Guy, everybody advertised their home in the local newspaper. And so on the Thursday or Friday, whenever the local newspaper came out, everybody bought the newspaper and read the 30 pages of property advertising and decided to go and look at a home over the weekend. And that was extremely expensive for the agents and very inefficient for the home buyer. Right move came along and you can now look at any house that's on the market in the UK any time of the day or night. You can arrange viewings any time of the day or night, and it's up to date pretty well, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So right move changed the way that house hunting took place. Everything else in the house buying and leasing process is pretty well the same as it was in Dickensian times. And one day, not in my lifetime because I've stopped thinking about it anymore, the government or the regulators will introduce a system whereby it's as easy to buy a quarter of a million pound house as it is to buy a quarter of a million pound car. It never ceases to amaze me that you can walk down Park Lane in London and buy a quarter of a million pound car, pay for it and drive it away. If you walk upstairs into the state agency office and buy a quarter of a million pound flat, it'll probably take you somewhere between 15 and 20 weeks to complete that purchase. So I think sooner or later, they will devise a system where home transfer can be as efficient as other asset transfer. But I've, as I said, given up thinking that will be in my lifetime. Um, but technology has changed the way that people search for houses and um, find houses and arrange viewing of houses. Everything else remains the same. I think in every other form of hospitality, uh, of which your business is one, technology has transformed it forever. Um, businesses such as yours and Stay in a Pub and many other similar businesses didn't even exist 20 years ago, but they've only become available because of technology. Short-term accommodation couldn't be done if it has to be done in the old traditional way of going to the travel agency in the high street, sitting down with the lady from Thomas Cook, going through a series of coloured brochures and deciding where you would go on your holiday in Marbella or whatever, which is the way it was for most of my adult life. And so these changes have occurred radically and very quickly, really. And I, I see that going forward, even people in my generation and older than my generation have now become totally familiar with booking everything online. The younger generation, of which you're part and even younger than you, wouldn't think of doing anything other than using technology. And so for better or for worse, and I think in the main for better and certainly cost efficiently, the, the role of the high street is diminished. The role of traditional people like travel agents is probably almost terminally closed. Um, sooner or later, I think online estate agents will, will take over this sort of countrywide, will no longer need 1,400 regional officers. Um, they will probably need 50 regional branches with heavy technology support and many people working from home. So I think the evolution will continue, but I think the revolution happened in house agency 20 years ago. In terms of the consumer user experience, I totally agree. However, in order for businesses to really transform and benefit from, you know, game-changing technology, they need to first of all understand and adopt it. And there's clearly a sticking point there. So I'd love to hear from you. Why is that? 
think there are a, a combination of problems. One is that the agency industry, in almost all its forms, has been manned by people of relatively low technical competence. And therefore, the adoption of high-grade technology is a challenge. To attract people of much higher technical competence is a much more expensive task, despite the misconception that all estate agents drive around in Porsche 911s and wear white socks. The brutal truth is that most people drive around in a Ford Escort and probably don't have any white socks um, and, and are relatively modestly paid, but are of relatively modest ability, and certainly in, in technology terms. And so in, in an industry where the margins are quite low, because estate agency fees in the UK are traditionally extremely competitive, low, I would say, and ridiculously low in some cases. If you try and marry very tight margins and a very challenged technology-based workforce and add that to technology, which by and large is quite complex and quite expensive, there's a mismatch. And I don't think the match is anywhere near yet blended. Over the next 10 or 15 years, I think even people of average school leaver competence will have very high technology abilities. And therefore, those young people moving into businesses like a state agency will be able to grasp and grow with a technology much more able than that has been in the past. The margin issue will still remain an issue unless the UK population get the idea that they're going to have to pay more for the estate agency service. But bizarrely, the people who've come in, the online agents who've come into the market trying to challenge very unsuccessfully the traditional agents, have tried to do it on cut fees. So they've got a double whammy, really, that they've got a challenge on marketing and that they have to spend a lot of money on their technical marketing to get a marketplace. And they're trying to do it with very low fees. And it's no surprise to me that the only result thus far has been tens, if not hundreds of millions of pounds of losses. So what advice do you have, Harry, for entrepreneurs who are eyeing up opportunities in this space? I'm regularly approached, I would think at least twice a month, by people saying, would I advise them or would I get involved or would I finance or whatever, property apps. Most of them are solving problems that don't actually exist, or they're solving problems that exist, but not in a cost-effective way. I go back without wishing to be boring to the same point I made earlier. I, I've been in estate agency since God was a boy. The margins have always been tight. There isn't an enormous profit to be made in agency. And so uh, building technology that solves problems that may only exist on the margin, but which add to the overheads, are not usually attractive. So I, I think... The, the, work, the industry works reasonably well as it is at the moment. Uh, it's aided by some forms of technology. But I think at the moment, I think I read somewhere there's over 2,000 property apps, either in development or being developed. I would say that of those, 90 to 95% will fail because they're either solving problems that don't exist at all, or they're solving problems but not cost effectively and therefore will never find a market. So what you're saying in summary is that in 90 to 95% of circumstances, there is a lack of product market fit. Correct. Basically, entrepreneurs are coming up with solutions that do not meet the requirements of their customer, either in terms of being economically viable or solving problems which are, you know, valuable enough to that audience. Correct. And I have to say, from my limited experience, I would absolutely agree with that. You know, a lot of entrepreneurs coming to this market do not come from the industry. Um, they have not spent sufficient time studying the nuances 
of their customer audience and therefore you know they're solving problems at a superficial level um, which of course lives to haunt them right harry let's wrap up with a couple of quick fire questions firstly have you ever been given any advice that's really shaped you in your career that you're happy to pass on i'm largely self-taught guy i've learned the lessons sometimes the hard way but fortunately not very often so I've, I've given more advice than I've ever received. And I think, I think the best advice that I've given to people has always been to, to, to train people to the best of their abilities. We had a, a culture at Countrywide where we would only part with people if we decided that we'd given them every possible chance. And so I would regularly go to meetings and say, this office performance is going to change for the better, of course, because we've got a new manager. And I said, well, why is the new manager going to be any better than the old one? Why not take the old one who already knows our skills and our abilities and teach them, add, add skills to their existing skills rather than getting rid of them, bringing somebody else who we have to start from scratch. Um, so that continues to be my philosophy. And very wise, it seems, too. I mean, make your team feel supported and confident, create a great culture and people will go on to do amazing things. Oh, if only it was that easy. <laughs> anyway, on to our next question. Harry, if you'd not gone into a state agency, what would you have done as an alternative career? I would like to have um, sold wristwatches for Sotheby's. I like wristwatches. I'm a great admirer of the skills of watchmakers. And I think auctioneering is the most fabulous way of spending your time. It's I'm not naturally a, a show-off, but it, it brings out the showman in anyone. There's always the challenge between you and the buyer who wants to pay as little as possible and you want them to pay as much as possible. Um, and so there's a sort of sparring on every single item you ever sell. There's a sparring between you and the buyers. I would love to have the technical skills to look at a very fine period Rolex watch and know when it was built and by whom, often down to the individual person. Uh, I think that would have been great. So I, I would have probably chosen that if it was an alternative. I, I look back still thinking that, you know, would I have enjoyed my life in the army had I got into Sandhurst when I was a young man? I think possibly I would because one of my sons did become a, a senior officer in the Marines and had a fantastic career for 22 years. But to be honest, Guy, I count my blessings every day. I, I've enjoyed almost every day of my business life from the day I left school to today. And there aren't many people who can say that. Well, I have absolutely nothing to say to that. Here, here. I have one final question for you, Harry, which I ask every guest, um, which is who do you most admire in real estate? And who would you like to invite onto this show to share their 2020 vision? Well, the guy who seems to have the most amazing talent is the man who was at Zoopla and has now set up a car business, Alex Chesterman, who I see is about to sell into a SPAC, his 18-month-old car sales business, which doesn't seem to me like a very specialized business. But I read in the newspaper, if there's any credence of truth, that he's talking about £7 billion. So I would think Alex might be a good man. Well, he most certainly seems to have the Midas touch, so I will get in touch with him and see if he's open to sharing a little bit of his pixie dust with the rest of us. Harry Hill, charming as ever. Thank you so much for your time. You've been an absolute pleasure to have on the show. And thank you so much for sharing your 2020 vision. Okay, Trump.
Real Estate 2020 Vision was brought to you by Lavanda. Check out www.getlavanda.com.